Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. We're a little bit early today, uh, a little bit earlier than we normally go, but uh, that's because uh, my little Dini is uh, at the vets, and I'll need to be going to get him in a little while. His voice will be a little higher, I imagine. Um, it's uh, that time of life. We don't want a bunch of little Dinis running around the uh, neighborhood anytime in the near future, so... Uh, doing our part and keeping Bob Barker happy in the afterlife, uh, you might might say. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm sure somebody will probably complain about that too. Uh, that's sort of how it how it works. Uh, <clears throat> more wild and crazy stuff happening in Rome. We're going to be starting a sermon series at Apologia on Roman Catholicism that Jeff and I will be taking different parts. Um, over the next couple of months, well, obviously, I, I leave early February, so um, my parts will be done uh, by that, that point in time, I guess. But um, the stuff going on with Fernandez um, and the books he's written of really questionable character, um, it, it, if you're not familiar with all this... Um, for many years, Joseph Ratzinger was known as the German Shepherd. Um, he was the head of the congregation. Now that now it's called something else, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, or something like that. It's the old Inquisition. It's the uh, it's the part of the Roman hierarchy that's responsible for enforcing doctrine, basically, and. That's one of the reasons that people were really surprised that he ever became Pope was um, you, you don't make friends and influence people at, at that particular point in time. Well, you do influence people, but not quite in that context. Anyway, um, last July, I believe it was, Francis removed the head of the dicastery, the, um, the Inquisition. <laughs> And replace him with a, a, a obviously a buddy. It, it was nepotism in a sense. Um, someone who had uh, supported him for a long time and from the same background and same area and stuff like that. Um, I, I've had some people tell me he's a Jesuit. Other people have said there's no evidence of that. You would think there wouldn't be a, a problem in being open and clear and honest about this type of stuff. But but this guy has said he's way to the left of Francis, that he holds more radical views than Francis does. And Francis is obviously um, a liberation theologian and everything else. Um, so if he's to the left of him, he's way out there. And he's a ghostwriter for Francis. And so this is really troubling to a lot of people. Um, there's already been at least two papal pronouncements that pretty much this guy wrote. They're not really coming from the Pope. He's just rubber stamping what this guy is writing. And he's written books on kissing and other stuff that I might even go into that you know people are starting to find out about. And, and it's like, how does this guy end up where he's ended up? I mean, he's the guy behind the recent statement that Many, many bishops and cardinals around the world have said, nope, ain't doing that. Uh, the, 
in, in regards to uh, fiducia supplicants, I think is, is what it was, uh, in regards to the possibility of blessings, same-sex relationships, as long as it doesn't look like a wedding, as long as it couldn't be confused with the blessings you give for a regular wedding. And again, everybody knows what this is about. You, you don't... I, I Look, I feel for you guys. I... I I I honestly feel for people that are trying to hold on to stuff when it's obviously coming apart. But everybody knows this is how it's been done everywhere else it's been done. It's a it's a little step here and a little step there and then a bigger step and bigger step and bigger step and by the time you get to the the fifth, sixth, seventh step, um everything that you were warning about in the first step has now come true and it's the exact same game plan. It's how the left works. It doesn't matter if it's in the United Church of Christ or the United Methodist Church or the ELCA or uh, PCUSA, what, whatever. It's the same process. And it's happening right before our eyes in Rome where we've been told forever that can never take place because we have... Um, the infallible magisterium, and we have the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope, and the Pope cannot teach error to the church, and um, and, and again, the most worthless doctrine on the planet, because the way that it function is, the Pope cannot teach error to the church, except when he does. <laughs> it's just, but and you never know when. You, you don't You don't know if the current living Pope um, is telling the truth, and you're not going to know for generations afterwards. Um, that's that's the only way you can explain Honorius, and that's the only way you can explain all of the, the doctrinal changes that are, have taken place and are taking place and are accelerating in their taking place uh, within Roman Catholicism. And so this is why right now, um, the you know, th this... I know, I'm well aware of the fact that there has been a huge change uh, since the late 1990s, okay? Let's, let's say over the past 20 years, 20, 25 years, you know, we've been dealing with this subject for a long, 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 long time. And if, if we had challenged Catholic answers in 2001... Uh, to debate is John Paul II, the infallible vicar of Christ on earth, they would have jumped at the opportunity. Um, but you you can't find anybody to defend Francis in that way because the only people who would have to be theological leftists and liberals. And as a result, uh they're not interested in debating anyways. They don't debate is outside of the realm of what they think is appropriate. That's sheep stealing and all that kind of proselytization, you know, stuff that Francis has spoken against um, for the past 10 years. So you, you, it's so obvious to those of us who've been watching Rome for a long time, how much change has already taken place. And it's just sad to watch people you know, going, well, you know, he might end up being an anti-pope and, you know, but, you know, the ship will right itself and everything's going to be fine. And 
and they they just they just can't bring themselves to admit just how much of a radical this guy is and you know it and the same thing happens within politics you you see these truly radical individuals that are out there and and people just when you look in the past you can you can see oh i would have opposed that person that person that person but when they're actually alive when they're right there in front of you you just can't believe that certain people would be as radical as they are but but they are uh, that's why Biden's in the White House is uh, the radicals that are actually running the country had to had to remain hidden, and you had to have a empty suit, a a someone who's just not even there. You know, it's hard to get. You know, it was it was a it was a it was possible to get angry with Biden when he did that insane red light background screeching speech that he did a couple of years ago. Um, but other, other than that, you, you even watch the man walk. He walks like the little senile old men at, at the old folks home. And we all see it. You know, it's, he, does, he doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't know what's going on. We know he's not in charge. We, and, and that's the way it has to be. I, I mean, the leadership at the highest levels in the military and everything else has been so utterly compromised. The only way it could happen is to keep it hidden. And that's what they've done. And just as fundamental things within the American government are being changed outside of the view of people, uh, that's what's happening in Rome. And we just, we just can't, we just can't believe that it's happening during our lifetime or right in front of our faces. Uh, but it is. And I feel for people uh, within Roman Catholicism that just, they see it. There's a part of their mind that realizes what's going on. And another part says, no, I can't accept any of this. And so they're, they're left in this um, strange world. And, and that's why conversion right now just strikes me as so odd and strange. Um, you're, you're converting to a very confused system. You, and, and so when, when people convert and they say it's because solo scriptura is not true and, and you just, I sit there and go, oh, okay, all right. So solo scriptura is not true. Um, and what you've got, which is producing massive confusion and division and a massively wide range of expression within what's called the Catholic communion um, so that you can, and, and yeah, you know, we've, we've had the liberals at Boston college for a long time. Um, and, and I keep pointing to them and saying, why doesn't, why doesn't the papacy do something about this? You want your infallible leader, What? why what's going on? And still nothing happens. Um, and now those radicals at Boston College are pretty much in charge. Um, and, and you want to say that the Pope somehow keeps everything unified or you need the teaching magisterium of the church, except right now the magisterium is telling you something different than the magisterium told you 20 years ago. And you literally have bishops. There's a, there's a 
uh, synod going on, sort of in fits and starts right now. And and if it have if if you listen to what's being said, the people that are representing Francis and the magisterium and the direction they want things to go, you know what they're saying, and you know what they want to have accepted within Roman Catholicism, and you've got all sorts of bishops that are just being honest and saying this is where it's going, and then they get kicked out, or they get silenced, or whatever else. And it, it's it. you just want to go, so so this is your, your solution? This is... You, you, will, you will stand there and say, Scripture is insufficient, but the magisterium is? For producing what? what what's it sufficient for producing? Um, you know, I mean... Let me give an example. Um, I I got to see this 1946 movie. Finally, it was exactly what we expected it to be. It's 99% emotion. It's it's zero um, percent uh, meaningful scholarship. The argumentation is just as vacuous and bad as expected it to be. It's the standard. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Arsene Koitai and you know the sibling oracles say this hundreds of years later, and and you know ignore the actual origination of the term it's it's everything we've said it would be it's 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 really nothing new um it's just another emotional way of getting around deal the dealing with the reality of what scripture says about homosexuality um and so a roman catholic might say well pfft, we don't have that you you protestants have that that's what that's what sola scriptura results in but it's not um, you you have to if you if if you're a Roman Catholic and you think that the leftist quote unquote progressivist um, impulse is due to sola scriptura, then you don't understand sola scriptura, and you do not understand what progressivists believe about scripture. They don't believe in sola scriptura. They don't believe they don't even believe in a scriptura, let alone a sola. Their view of scripture is so low, so secular, that to even even include them in the conversation is to not have the conversation at all. So I hear people saying stuff like that, and I go, no. In, in fact, sola scriptura allows us to stand firm even when the society... And the winds of cultural change are blowing the opposite direction. We can and must stand firm in what Scripture teaches, um, because it's the sole infallible rule of faith of the Church, <laughs> and the Church does not have the right to become its 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 own guiding voice. And these denominations that have abandoned that do not practice sola scriptura. They do not believe in sola scriptura. Um, and those denominations that do are holding firm. And up till recently, you could at least try to make an argument, well, so is Roman Catholicism, but you can't make that argument anymore, no matter how hard you try. You had a bishop at the Synod when asked a question about LGBTQ issues and LGBTQ inclusion. What did he do? Maybe you didn't catch this part. But he made reference to the change in the Catholic Catechism on capital punishment. 
as an example of what could be coming. And the teaching on capital punishment has been reversed. For hundreds of years, you could look at the 1592 Catechism of the Council of Trent and its description of capital punishment as a gift to the state, a, an unpleasant gift. A, uh, it's sad that God would have to do this, but the state has to be able to create order. And there are certain crimes that are so heinous that the only possible just punishment is execution. Well, that was the doctrine for a long, 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 long time, and it's not anymore. It's been reversed. It's, it's never right, according to the Catholic Catechism now. And he pointed to that in answer to a question. That means there are people in the hierarchy of Rome, that's the direction their thinking is going. And here's the question. If you reject Sola Scriptura, how can you stop it? You can't. You can't. You can't do the, well, we, a council will stop it. That, that, the days, that passed. Can't, can't do it anymore. Council of Constance healed the papacy, but very quickly the papacy stamped out any kind of conciliarism and the elevation of an ecumenical council to the ultimate authority. And Vatican I then drove a stake through the corpse of that whole thing. You, you can't read Vatican I. And, and you know, and I, I, I see you guys out there. I see, you know, there was a, there was a guy in, uh, uh, was it Nigeria? It was one of, the, one of the African bishops was saying, we're not, we're not going with this statement. With this um, papal statement, we're not we're not going to do it, but we're not opposing Pope Francis. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> you, you can you can pretend that you're not opposing Pope Francis, but I can guarantee you one thing: he knows you're opposing him. You know, you you may try to you know, do all the political stuff, and well, we're not really doing this. We're not. Yes, you are. And that's what you're stuck with. Um, that's that's where you are. Sorry, uh, I'm not going to not utilize this information. If you're going to deny sola scriptura, I'm going to say, look what the option is. Because you're not the only option out there. You've got Eastern Orthodoxy. You've got all sorts of people who will say, you're right, Scripture alone is not sufficient, therefore you need the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses, you need the Council of the Twelve and the First Presidency of the Mormon Church, uh, you, you need all these other external stuff. And when you put all those groups together and compare what they believe, they can't even figure out whether there's one God or not. The churches and denominations that actually understand Sola Scriptura and seek to live in light of it have tiny differences in comparison to the groups that say Scripture plus an infallible authority. And I know you y'all don't like that comparison, but that's the proper comparison. Um, 
what y'all like do is just, well, it's, we're only going to compare us, and even then you'll sort of trim off the weirdness on the outsides. We're only going to compare us to all solo scriptura believing Protestant dominations, and normally you don't even worry about that. You just you throw the Gnostics in and all the rest of this stuff just to get the numbers as big as possible. So, uh, there's a guy, and uh, I have the only way to really do this. It's it's an 18 minute video. You know, I could just play the 18 minute video, but it would take too long. There is a guy on uh, YouTube called um, Reformed to Rome. So he's a former Calvinist um, who has gone, who has converted Roman Catholicism, and whenever you challenge him on stuff, uh, he just goes, well, look, you've got to deal with this video that I did um, that proves Sola Scriptura is not true. Now, I don't I, I don't know if he really thinks that having a video where he argues that Acts chapter 15 uh, is a refutation of uh, Sola Scriptura is a sufficient argument to, to go, and that means Francis is the infallible vicar of Christ. <laughs> it's just by default. Um, I'm not sure if he actually believes that. And I, I do wonder, honestly, if once Francis goes and the only options left, and I and I don't know if if he has actually um made the changes that are being rumored that he's working on as to how his successor is going to be selected to where a quarter of the vote's going to come from outside the college of cardinals including lay people and women but i i can guarantee you if there is a group of lay people and women that are being chosen they're probably not conservatives okay just just a wild guess there. I don't, who knows? Um, <laughs> and and so it it makes it makes me wonder. Will it take one more pope? That's to the left of Francis. Um, could you imagine a Fernandez as pope? Oh, even I get, get go at at the very thought. Um, I wouldn't want to see that though. It would certainly lead to massive disruption and schism pretty much immediately. Um, but it, it, I, I can't see how the next pope is not going to be at least as far to the left, if not farther, than Francis. And if that continues, so you keep choosing cardinals based upon agreement with this new narrative, the synod and the synodality keeps pushing the LGBTQ inclusion stuff, and we just know where that ends up going. How many popes moving, marching leftward will it take before conservative, historically Orthodox Roman Catholics go, it's done, it's been hijacked. It, it's finished. You know, what, what, what will it take? How much does it take? I don't know. 
so it really it really does you know when you place it within that within the context of what's happening right now um and then you look at this argument you, you realize wow talk about straining at gnats but we need to look at what the argument is so since he used um it looks like powerpoint same uh same layout i've used for a number of my presentations actually um Here's here's the here's the fundamental argument, okay? Um, let, let me just summarize it, then we'll read through it. The quote unquote Council of Jerusalem, the, the the meeting that takes place in Acts chapter fifteen, where you have uh, Paul, Peter. By the way, Peter is not quote unquote in charge. He's not functioning as a pope. Um, read it yourself, and you'll see that this is the case. So that's a problem in and of itself, uh, is that the early church does not have any concept of Peter needing to be in charge of this particular uh, meeting. But since they gave out a quote-unquote decree, since they wrote to the Gentile churches, and of course what they wrote was, this is how we believe we can keep peace, because there was a real threat. I mean, I, I would say that for Paul, um, when you realize how much of a threat he considered that division to be, that is, the idea of a Gentile Christian church and a Jewish Christian church dividing, this is what Antioch was about uh, in Romans chapter 3. Um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The context of that is all Jews and Gentiles. Um, this is central to his concern all along. And so um, when, when you recognize that, when you see what's going on there, then this desire for unity and and the the place that um Paul places the emphasis Paul places upon this 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 letter is meant to provide a means for keeping peace uh in the early church the argument is it's an infallible uh doctrinal and it's an infallible source outside of scripture even though the only way we know about it is in scripture the argument literally is, yeah, but it existed before Luke wrote Acts, and therefore it is something outside of Scripture that has infallible authority, and therefore there's no solo Scripture. Now, and he's aware of this. He's aware of the fact that most of us just look at this and go, you converted over this? Um, and in fact, I asked him... Um, on Twitter, I never got a response, or if I did, I never saw it, which unfortunately is sort of how things can happen on Twitter. Um, but I asked him, you know, honestly, if you you claim to have been reformed and hence to have been trusting in the all-sufficient um, merit of the imputed righteousness of Christ, and you're willing to trade that away. Because that's what you have to do. You can't, you cannot believe 
that you have imputed to you the righteousness of Christ in Roman Catholicism. They don't believe that. That's not a part of the teaching of the church. You can't have that with the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass. You can't have that with the Roman Catholic doctrine of baptism, sacramental forgiveness. All that stuff is based upon an utter denial of the blessedness of the blessed man of Romans 4.8, to whom the Lord will not impute sin. The entirety of the doctrine of purgatory vanishes into thin air when you ask the question, who's the blessed man? So I asked, how does that work? Um, how did, what, what, and I didn't get an answer. And like I said, if, if something was written, I didn't see it. Um, so uh, let's, let's, he, he uh, back to the point, he knows what the answers are, and specifically um, that sola scriptura is not a valid principle during periods of giving the scripture. How could it be? You, you can't. You can't even have the the issue is after revelation has ceased. What is the infallible rule of faith of church? That's the question. And both sides, at least in you know, not when you're talking with Mormons, but when you're talking with Roman Catholics. We believe revelation has ceased, that there are no apostles today. Now, I have talked to some Roman Catholics and some former Roman Catholics that would go, you know, the only way really to, to, to really substantiate something like the bodily assumption is to sort of fudge on that and come up with the idea that maybe there really is continuing revelation. Um, that's sort of the only way to, only way to pull it off. But we allegedly agree on that issue. And so the question is, the church, after the apostles, what is the sole infallible rule of faith? And so Acts 15 is a recording of the work of the Spirit. And so much of what we see in Paul's epistles and there in Acts is dealing with the churches coming to wrestle with the gospel going to the Gentiles, and the nature of what the new covenant's going to be, um, and how it's to be applied, and all of this kind of stuff. And so the idea that a council that we only know about, and we only know about what, what the conclusion of the apostolic conversation was, because it's found in Scripture, that that somehow demonstrates that sola scriptura isn't true, makes all of us go, but that's just silly. But he does try to say, well, it can't be true at one point and not true at another point. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. We're talking about after the events of redemption and the establishment of the church, what is the church to look to as its sole infallible rule of faith? Or are there going to be lots of infallible rules of faith? That is the question. And it is not a definitional part of the claim of sola scriptura to say that during periods of time when God is revealing scripture, when he is revealing the scriptura, that it exists somehow to the exclusion of revelation. No, revelation is taking place right now. The issue is, after the apostles are gone, what does the church look to? And Acts 15 does not answer that question. 
And to convert over something like that tells me that's probably not why you converted. That was just your way of getting around what you really wanted to get out of conversion. Okay? So, let's take a look at this real quick, because I have some other stuff to, to get to. Um, so, it says, the decree of the Jerusalem Council is the decree infallible. Uh, we can only know the decree as it exists in Scripture. Now, before we can answer the question of there being an infallible source outside of Scripture, we need to answer the question of the Jerusalem Council's decrees infallibility. Acts 15 affirms the infallibility of the content of the decree, assuming infallibility of Scripture, to which proponents of Sola Scripture generally hold. Now, the important question is, was the decree infallible before Luke recorded in Acts 15? Was it made infallible by Luke's recording of it? No, it's both, both are irrelevant. The only, only reason we know it is it is in Scripture. This is a part of redemption history that is recorded for us and for our edification and for the guidance of the church. It's not the setting up of some external um, paradigm where the church uh, can call councils and create infallible... Um, well, again, it, it would have to be revelatory stuff. This is revelatory because it's found in Scripture, but once there aren't any apostles, there's no revelation. So, any... Now, the, the, some Roman Catholics have argue, argued that if you can have this council in Acts 15, that therefore, whenever the church calls a council in the future, it has the same level of infallible authority. In fact, it's interesting. Um, if you read, uh, where is it? Yeah, perspectives on church government, um, B and H. Robin Holman. Um, if you read the exchange that I had with um, Robert Raymond. Uh, I was defending plurality of elders. He was defending um, the Presbyterian ecclesiology. They looked to Acts 15 as foundation for um, sessions and presbyteries for a um, ecclesiastical organization above the local church. And so you'll see that when we did our response to somebody else, I know that they had to ask him to cut his back because he went way over his limit. Uh, because it really, at that point, devolved down to a debate between he and I. And we both used our maximum number of words um, in, our, in our rebuttal, but only of each other. When, when, we were, when we were rebutting other people, they just hadn't made enough of an argument to really have to invest a whole lot of time in it. But when we were responding to each other, it was max, because that's where they're trying to come up with this external stuff. Um, but the fact is, there is nothing in the council in Acts chapter 15 that indicates that this is something that's going to be repeated in the future. It, it doesn't establish some kind of conciliar paradigm. Um, you don't have... You know, just, just look to both Second Timothy which progressivists can't look to as being Pauline, um, and neither can Trent Horn, given what he's said about the meaning of Theodostos. 
Um, but uh, 2 Timothy and Acts 20, so only a few chapters after Acts 15, in Acts 20, when Paul's with the Ephesian elders, um, he doesn't say to them, just, just call councils when you have any questions. Uh, he, he commends them to the, the grace of God and the message of the gospel. That's, that's what he commits them to. Same thing he does for Timothy in the second Timothy chapter three. Um, so we continue on here and I, at, since this is a video, I have to, there we go. And if I skip something, it's cause I just pulled the thing too far. Um, now, the important question was the decree infallible before Luke recorded it in Acts 15, or was it made infallible by Luke's recording it? If the decree was fallible when issued, then it is a fallible section of Scripture. Well, um, this obviously is applying categories, uh, exceptionally uh, anachronistic categories, back upon an event in the early church that was primarily Jewish in context, and it had to do with the fact, well, you know, uh, Acts chapter 10, sheets coming down from heaven. <laughs> you know, Rise, Peter, kill you. No, 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 don't call what I've called unclean, clean, uh, clean, unclean, and blah, 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 blah. This is going on for chapters. This is a major, major, major issue in the early church. And it is all about the fact that there can be only one way to be in right relationship to God, and that is in Jesus Christ. Uh, his righteousness imputed to us is what makes us all one. And so, uh, it's not so even even asking questions about fallible, infallible. It's not meant to be a decree. It is meant to be. This is how we need to have peace. As we are affirming that the gospel is going out into the Gentile world. We are affirming that this is what God is doing, that the Judaizers are wrong in saying you must become a part of the old covenant before you can become a part of the new covenant. Um, and so this is the, 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 the apostles affirming that what God has done first with Peter and Cornelius, um, and now with Paul going out, you know, the apostle of the Gentiles, that this is God's purpose. This is what God's doing in the church. So the idea of fallible, infallible is irrelevant. This is what the church did. Um, and it was a part of the spirits working in the church during period of inscripturation. That's what, uh, you know, that, that's like asking, there, there's a number of things in the book of Acts that show the evolution from a completely Jewish group in Jerusalem to um, people in Caesar's household by the time the history is wrapped up. And the church has always struggled with people that try to make some of the most primitive periods normative for everything else. Um, so what do you make normative? Do you make the first 10 chapters normative? Do you make the last 10 chapters normative? What exactly, how do you, how do you handle these things? Um, it says, since the New Testament recognizes the decree as an infallible source of doctrine, 
never using terminology like this. It's the apostles teaching the church. We know the decree itself is infallible. The, authorize, the, the authors recognize the Holy Spirit as a source. Yeah, they recognize the Holy Spirit as a source. It's not something outside of Scripture, however, because Scripture is still being written. There are still entire books of the New Testament that have not yet been written. This is during apostolic ministry. Since the decree was not issued as Scripture, doesn't have to be. That's like, that's like saying, well, since, um, since Luke didn't issue Acts as Scripture, Luke didn't write uh, the Gospel of Luke as Scripture, uh, Paul didn't write Philemon as Scripture. I mean, this, this, it's just, that's why it's sort of hard to deal with this, because it's so silly. Um, it was outside of Scripture, being recorded in Scripture doesn't make it Scripture beforehand, same as scriptural citations of secular writings, etc. No. Um, just so many category errors uh, in this fellow's thinking. It, it's, it's sad. And, and by the way, the only person I can think of that used a similar argument to this in all the, and I've, I've debated Sola Scriptura with a lot of Roman Catholics, um, and it wasn't in a debate on Sola Scriptura. It was in the debate on the bodily assumption of Mary, and it was Bob Genesis. And Syngenis used Acts chapter 15 in a sort of similar fashion to try to come up with the idea that, you know, and like I said, you've got to give Bob credit. He's one of the few people that's even had the guts to debate this. The vast majority of Roman Catholic apologists won't touch with the 10-foot pole um, because they know the only, the only defense for it. It's not, you can't defend it historically. You can't defend it biblically. The only thing you can do is say, well, the church has said it, therefore, that, that, that's it. It doesn't work real well in, in debates. Um, at least he tried. I think failed miserably, but he did try and used Acts chapter 15 as, as, as a mechanism. So, obviously, every sermon, every sermon in Acts was outside of Scripture when it was preached. But this is, this is supposed to be relevant? This, this kind of reasoning is why you now submit to Francis? Seriously? You, you've seen you, you've seen the pictures of, you know, as soon as it came out of a, of a priest blessing a same-sex couple and you don't see that that's the end result of the twisting you're doing here? Mm. Oh, Okay, um, that's ugly. So he he goes on. Um, so he says, since Scripture uses the decree as an infallible source of doctrine, thus affirming its fallibility, yet the decree wasn't itself issued as Scripture. We see that we do in fact have an infallible rule of faith that was outside of Scripture. Really, I it's sort of my hope and prayer. This is what I'd love to see happen. I would love to see this individual uh, watch what happens with the election of the next pope, who will be to the left of the current pope, and realize I've made a mistake. I've, I, I, I need to, I need to be humble enough to realize I, I traded away the imputed righteousness of Christ and true irony with God for the endless treadmill of penances and sacramental forgiveness 
and indulgences and everything else on the basis of a and and I used and grabbed onto not necessarily because I I can think of like I said in the vast majority of debates that I've done this has not been the direction that they went but I glommed onto an argument and that argument doesn't work and that there would be sufficient humility to go I'm going to abandon it and I'm going to seek true peace with God in the way that scripture has said to um, to do that this infallible rule of faith outside of scripture was distributed to all the faithful and bound them to the decree issued uh, again taking ecclesiastical formulations from a thousand years later reading it backwards um, and again every every sermon in the book of Acts um, was preached before it was written down in scripture um, this kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna force during periods of revelation a standard after periods of revelation doesn't make any sense um, and so he does try to say success but now we have succeeded in technically refuting the definition of sola scriptura which he didn't give and and violated clearly because sola scriptura isn't talking about periods of revelation that scripture is the only infallible rule of faith since the decree was an infallible rule of faith circulated outside of scripture uh, but critics still have a few avenues left to try and salvage their position <laughs> you get the feeling that this guy already sort of had the, his conclusions laid out beforehand, and now it's just, what can we cobble together here? Um, can claim Sola Scriptura was only for periods without ongoing inscripturation? Oh, so he does know. And new revelation and not the norm for the people of God throughout the ages, right? Can claim Sola Scriptura was only intended to be true and applied after all the apostles died? Uh-huh. And had compiled the deposit of faith in the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, okay, so how do you how do you get around that? Well, this is problematic in application. Well, only if you're anachronistic. Because in theory, Protestants view all periods outside the intertestamental period and the post-apostolic period as when the process of new revelation and scripturation was occurring. So it almost leads to the next recourse by fault. Even if you tried to parse it beyond that broad approach, saying it was intermittent periods of alternating soul scriptura and revelation and scripturation, this shows that on a whole, soul scriptura was not the, not the norm. Again, what's the real issue? The real issue is, for the Church of Christ, after the apostles have gone, how do you hear the voice of Christ? What do you have? You have Francis, and you can't get away from him. I have Scripture. I'm in the better position. By a long shot. By a long shot. Don't don't sit there and tell me that Acts chapter 15 is sufficient basis for a Jesuit priest blessing two guys holding hands. The only blessing that is to be given to someone in that situation is repent. And that's not what Francis or Martin or Fernandez are saying. That's not, and you know it, and you're stuck with it. And that's just that's just one um could you put a screen up for a second, please? Just a second. Hello?
Dini's fine. <laughs> look, look, it's live, guys. And my, my kitty had surgery. And when the vet calls you, you know, you still got that little thought in the back of your mind that things happen, you know, and you want to you know. So I'll be picking him up. Question is, will he ever forgive me? <laughs> I, I was holding another one of my cats. We have a 15-year-old who does not like any of the new additions to the family. Uh, 15 year old who we had fixed as well. And I was sort of just chatting with him. If you can chat with a cat, uh, you don't really remember that. Do you have <laughs> never really held that against us um, as he's purring in my lap. And so, yeah, no, I, I, it, it, it might take a week, but eventually he'll, uh, he'll get past it and all will be well. So, Hey, I'm, we're only so what, what, what was the Piper book? Um, Brethren, we're not professionals or something like that. Well, we we prove that every uh, every program that we do. So um, anyway, um, where were we? Okay, so um, he says, uh, even if you tried to parse it beyond that broad approach, saying it was intermittent periods of alternating soul scripture and revelation and scripturation, this shows on the whole soul scripture was not the norm. Okay, irrelevant. We're talking about after the last apostle has died, what does the church have? Rome says, we've got this oral tradition. We never have to tell you what it is. We don't even have to demonstrate that anybody in the first thousand years the church believed it, but we can force you to believe it. And that's what you reformed to Rome. That's where you are. You believe things that have zero connection to the apostles. None. And you seriously want anyone else to believe? You seriously want to believe? You want to lead people to believe these ultimately, obviously non apostolic teachings as if they define the faith itself, de fide, on the basis of this redefinition of Sola Scriptura? Shame on you. I hope God convicts you. I really, really do. He goes on to, to, and just keeps building on this, but it there's the error. It, it's a fundamentally mystified um, doctrine of sola scriptura, and once you recognize the anachronism of it, you just go, well, okay, there you go, enough for that. Thank you, uh, Mr. Pierce, for that. You can pull that down. Um, I just hate pulling things down when it's still up on the screen. It looks... Uh, as unprofessional as me taking phone calls from the vet, but hey, we can avoid that. Okay. A number of statements. Um, okay. Select. Why can't, why won't you move? Oh, thank you. All right. uh, a number of statements from Leighton Flowers that I want to address that you know, Rich always wants me to be addressing Leighton Flowers. <laughs> Rich would rather come in here and do it himself, I think. It would be very short, he said. Okay, yeah. Troubling statements. Uh, you know, there's been troubling statements for a long time, but it seems to me that they're coming fast and furious these days. I'm, I'm wondering if the impending debate has something to do with that. Probably does. Probably does. 
Um, here's one. A provisionist says something like, the few who are elect in Jesus' wedding parable are those who came in response to the invitation clothed in his righteousness by faith, the wedding garments. We are chosen only insofar as we are clothed in Christ, the chosen one. Now, I just want you to to hear what's being said there. Because, yes, I think it's appropriate to think about um, wedding garments show submission to the standards of inclusion in the wedding. Um, And so the, the whole point of the rejection of the individual... Because, remember, the the king had sent servants out. Come to the wedding. Come to the wedding. Um, Because a number of people had made excuses and weren't coming, remember? Um, And yet, the parable points out that one came without a wedding garment and was cast out into outer darkness. So, you don't get to determine what that is. You don't get to determine what the standards are. But, we are chosen only insofar as we are clothed in Christ, the chosen one. So that seems to indicate to me. Um, now, of course, again, this is the standard misreading of Ephesians chapter one. Um, Christ is not the direct object of the choosing in Ephesians chapter one. We are. Christ is the realm in which and the exclusive realm in which we are chosen. Ephesians 1 is the death knell of any inclusivistic concept. Inclusivism is dead on arrival unless you find some way around Ephesians chapter 1. Which, by the way, that that is the text that I have been asked to preach on in uh, Houston um, the Sunday, yeah, the Sunday morning after the debate on purgatory with Trent Horn, I think. You have to double check that, but I'm pretty certain. So that's next month. Um, yeah, ne- a little over a month from now, uh, I'll be preaching there in Houston at Vody Balcom's old church. Um, on, and they've asked I do Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So, there we go. Anyways, we'll be doing that. But we are chosen only insofar as we are clothed in Christ. So we clothe ourselves in Christ by our free will act. We have that capacity. And hence, the only way we can said to be, be chosen is because we have chosen to be in him. It's our choice. It's not God's choice. God's choice is only the big category stuff, but the actual uh, application and fruition is our choice. That's that's what provisionism is. It's that's what they hate is the idea that it's God's choice that determines who is going to be in Christ and who is not. It's totally up to us. That's that's the 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 important part there, and you can see where that ends up leading. So the next one. 
uh, was, stop that. Just drag, man. There we go. Um, Calvinists assume one must be better in order to believe in Christ. Now, of course, that's absurd. And, and um, we don't believe that. We believe you have to be spiritually alive and given the gift of faith and repentance. You have to be a new creature in Christ. We take Romans 5 seriously. So they affirm pre-faith regeneration, i.e., they affirm that a spiritually dead person must be made alive by the Spirit of God to do spiritual acts such as faith and repentance. When you, when you put it that way, it's like, well, duh. But they have their, they're developing their own um, lingo, which changes a lost person to someone better, i.e. with a new heart. No, not better, different, spiritually alive. That's like saying, you know, it's better to be alive than dead. <laughs> okay. But what they're reacting against is our saying to them, as we rightfully do, if you're saying that there is no divine decree, if you're saying that there is no decree of election, that God does not select a particular people in Christ Jesus, if you're saying everybody has the equal capacity to believe in Christ, and that God is trying equally with every single individual, which is so obviously not true, it's the, the Bible is a massive refutation of such thinking, isn't it? Isn't it a massive refutation of such thinking? Are you telling me that God gave as much light to someone living in South Egypt as he did to Moses and the Israelites? Don't even try. Don't, what are you talking about? It's absurd. But that's provisionism. So... God's trying to save everybody equally. Everybody has equal capacity. So, the question that we ask is, all right, if God's trying equally, and we are, we are all receiving equal light from the proclamation of the gospel, or whatever else it might be, which isn't true, but, okay, we run with it, then if you and your next-door neighbor... um a guy who's gone to school with you all the way through high school, you all heard the exact same messages, uh, maybe even went to some young life things after, after school a couple times, whatever. You're a Christian. They hate the gospel. Why are you a Christian and they're not a Christian? God's trying equally with both of you. So the only answer is in you. It's not in God. It's in you. You were more humble. You were more sensitive. And there's where language of better would come in. Because it's compared with someone who's under the same amount of conviction. God's trying just as hard with them as he is with you. You can't say he tries harder with anybody else because that becomes election. So you can't have that. So it's equal attempt with everybody. And if you accept and someone else does not, then you are 
better than the other person. More sensitive, more spiritually insightful, whatever terms you want to use. Because we're not talking about spiritually dead, spiritually alive. We're not talking about need to, need to be resurrected, regenerated. You've, you've done away with all that stuff. You're playing with the term responsible in Latin and English has given you the, the ground to say, we're all able to respond. And therefore, this is now your question. It's not our question. We don't have to answer it because we don't believe it. We don't believe it. We don't play those games. No man is able. Udunita. I'll take that over your playing with Latin forever. So, you keep putting better in scare quotes as well you should because it is a there there is no crossover of categories to making this a a meaningful comparison uh which changes a lost person to someone better i.e. with a new heart and then they project their assumption on us by asking what made you better so that you'd believe so i just explained that's not a projection of assumption that's a recognition of the fundamental differences in our anthropology um, our doctrine of sin, our doctrine of capacity and ability, the whole nine yards, what regeneration is, everything. They are question-begging by assuming a person must be better in order to believe. No, we are not question-begging. In our system, a person has to be spiritually alive to exercise spiritual uh, gifts and capacities. In yours, that's irrelevant and so the question is valid. Everybody's the same point. Everyone's receiving the same light from God. And therefore, why does one believe and one does not? It's a relevant question to you. It's not a relevant question to us. Um, when the truth is that God created us in such a way that anyone can put their trust in Christ for salvation. So, so there again, there's your anthropology. Um, the, the Bible can directly say no one is able, and you go, oh, it's just about the Jews. Ah, da, 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 da. Um, you don't need to be turned into a better person in order to believe in Jesus. Well, again, uh, that is using the term better in a confusing and misleading fashion. It's confusing better with spiritually alive. Um, and you, you've, you've always struggled with categories. I think you always will. Uh, but there's a, a clear, obvious thing. So, various people responded uh, to that, resulting in a lengthy one that I think was this morning. Uh, it says 8.55 on the 9th. Yep, that was this morning. That's when I screenshot anyways. So, we decided to try to unpack it further. I'll try to be brief here. Uh... You know what? To be, uh, it says, yet when I respond to Calvinists who ask the commonly asked question, what makes you better that you believed and someone else didn't? And I use the Calvinist's own word, the word better, to respond, then I'm accused of gross misrepresentation. Yeah, you know what? I, I don't need to go through this because I, I just demonstrated all this. Yes, it is gross misrepresentation because it's not a matter for us of betterness, goodness, or anything like humility, any of those things. Regeneration doesn't make you better, it makes you alive. It makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so you don't believe because you've been made better. You believe because you've been 
recreated in the image of Christ, and it's natural for one thusly created uh, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to believe in the one who has redeemed them and brought them to spiritual life. It's not a matter of better. You're the one who does not believe in spiritual death or have so minimized it that you will not allow it to mean what it says in Scripture. And so when we ask the question, it's again, it's back to if if God's doing the even thing, if he's trying with each person evenly, and you believe and the other person doesn't, why? What makes you, you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. What, what term do you want to use? But just be honest about what's being said and why the term better is irrelevant when, when you try to back apply it um, to us. Uh, do I do this last one? Um, you know, I, I think it, it, I think it'd be worthwhile, um, briefly, uh, to go ahead and do this because I, you know, five, 10 minutes at the most, um, here is a, a quotation again, uh, Leighton Flowers. When you pray for the unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that God desires that they come, not on the assumption that he destined most of them to be unable to come because he chose to reprobate them before they were born for reasons beyond their control. Now, again, um, uh, the, the, the poisoned pill terminology is just so, so bad uh, that it's, 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 it's astonishing. Um, when you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that God desires that they come. No, uh, I don't. When, uh, when you go out to, I didn't get to go out to Christmas lights. Uh, didn't work out sickness-wise. But when we go out to the Easter pageant, hopefully get to do so here Um I'm not even sure when Easter is this year now I think about it. Yeah, let's find out when that is. That'll be, be interesting to know. Um, I pray that God would be glorified in the proclamation of his gospel. And that, what? That's good. That's good. That that means, uh, yeah, that means we can definitely get out there. Um, you know who, you know who's heading up uh, the Mormon outreach for Apologia. Eric, my son-in-law. Um, I try not to say a whole lot. I mean, everybody knows um, how proud I am of Summer and the worldwide ministry that she's developed through Sheologians and um, just the tremendous job she's doing and homeschooling and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get Eric into trouble, but uh, pretty pretty proud of that young man. Uh, she she found a, she found a gem. She really did. And uh, um, you can already start telling. We we really wondered what would a the offspring of Summer and Eric be like, <laughs> because they both have really weird senses of humor, <laughs> and we're we're getting an idea that 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 may be the happiest boy I've ever seen. Uh, now I know he's not always like that. I heard uh, Saturday night was pretty ugly. He's got molars coming in, 
and and that a bunch of them are hitting all at the same time. So yeah, not not overly happy during during that time period. But generally, he is the smilingest, happiest little booger you'll ever see. So um, yes. Anyways, uh, back to what we were saying. Um, when we go to uh, when we go out to witness to the Mormons in um, in Mesa at the Easter pageant, which is hard to do now that they have it backwards. They, they, they flip that whole thing over. It just, it just, there's something wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's just, it's just, how do you do that? How'd they do that? Um, anyway, I pray that God's truth be proclaimed, that God would draw his elect unto himself, and that um, God would be glorified even in the rejection of his message by those that he passes over. And this is this we've been Rich can tell you. This this falls out on very and really really obvious basic thing. We'll be walking back to the cars after a night of passing out tracks or when we were in Salt Lake doing the same thing before the King James only wackos showed up. Um and we'd find a track laying on the ground frequently stomped on footprints all over it and we early on early years developed a term for that for that tract and we'd pick it up and we'd throw it out and we call it a fallen warrior and the reason being that we did not believe that it was wasted you see from a provisionist perspective it was wasted you you wasted your breath you wasted your time um, we don't believe so. We believe in God's sovereign decree that he is glorified even in the judgment of those who prefer the darkness to the light. And so when that Mormon guy at the south gate of the temple in Salt Lake, same year that I handed a tract to Senator Orrin Hatch, and he took it because I was wearing a Rush Limbaugh tie, and so was he. <laughs> Um, my son was wearing a 14-inch kid's Rush Limbaugh tie. Um, and when that Mormon guy walked up to my son and pulled uh, his pocket open on his little white shirt and stuffed the tract into it, I was already moving, I was on my way there, um, and then turned around and walked away. And I remember Josh turning around and looking at me, like, did I do something wrong? You know, and I, I just pat him on the shoulder and it's like, well, once you get the first rejection done, doesn't really bother you much after that, you know? Um, that was not a wasted tract. Um, that man will be held accountable for the truth that he chose to reject. And so... I, I start off with with a different understanding because I recognize what and you know what is Layton's actual job title? Director of Evangelism for Texas Baptist? Boy, if you don't if you don't have a theology of rejection, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. But it goes on to say, not on the assumption 
that he destined most of them to be unable to come. No, I recognize that I do not know the identity of the elect. And so there's there's two responses. And by the way, there are times when the elect will respond negatively because it's not the time for them in God's providence to come to see the truth. They, so I, I can't tell you how many people. Um, I had a lady within the past year and a half in Utah. A young lady came up to me and said, we mocked you. I walked by you at the general conference and me and my friends, we mocked you. And it was years later that through the continuing faithfulness of Alpha Omega Ministries, Apologia Studios, you and Jeff Durbin, I'm a Christian today. But when I first met you, I mocked you. Now, when I see those young ladies walking by and mocking me, and I don't remember, I don't remember that particular incident, but there were lots of incidents like that that I knew we were being mocked. Do I go, ha, huh, they're all reprobate? No. I don't know. They're probably going to outlive me. So God may be gracious to them 30, 40, 50 years down the road. I don't know that. I've got one calling. Be faithful. And trust that there's no power in heaven and earth that when God chooses to draw his elect into himself, he will do so. You don't have that, and you're not going to be doing what we do for long periods of time. Um, so, not the assumption that he destined them to be unable to come. That just means that they're in Adam. Uh, because he chose to reprobate them before they were born for reasons beyond their control. Um, that's provisionist hoo-ha for God has to be gracious to everybody equally. That's what, it's, that's what this is about. God's grace cannot be free. He cannot have the choice. We must have it. That's the angry, provisionist language just flowing out. But that's what it's saying. God can't be free. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh We are the ones who are free, not God. Not God. And then again, misuse of 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, ignores the preceding two verses, the categories of people that are talked about there, and then, obviously, the reality that Christ intercedes only for his people. If you don't read it that way, then you have universalism. I, I would love to see a provisionist try to debate a universalist. It, it, would, it would probably be, be pretty ugly. Um, there are universalists out there. Um, a lot of people just are not prepared to actually deal with them. You raised your microphone a long time I, ago. I did. Um, you know, I, I listened to to that, and, and I didn't see that post uh, before you put it up there. And you know, I think about back in the old Arminian days, long, long time ago. And, Go for it, buddy. And I, I think, well, I'm I'm thinking back in the days when we were at North Phoenix Baptist and the altar calls and you know, 25 stanzas of just as I am and, and, and all that. And I just remember praying and not even thinking, not even knowing about Reformed theology, Calvinism, or any of this yet, and praying that God would convict people of their sin. Send the Holy Spirit, I was praying, and convict people of their sin, that they would 
convert, that they would come forward, that they, these were the things I wanted. And when I finally started processing what the issues were, I suddenly realized that prayer was entirely inconsistent with what I believed. Because I was asking God to violate their free will. <laughs> I was asking God to invade them and to convict them and to change their hearts. And there is nothing within Arminian thought or Leighton Flowers' system that can allow for that. Yeah. It can't. And I, I just need, so when I hear him talk like this, I think, how do you pray for the lost, Leighton? Because God's not allowed to do anything about it no, in your or, system. Or he's already done everything he can do about yeah, it. He's just, oh, I sure hope. Yeah, hope, hope, hope. I, I hope the choice yeah. meet realizes yeah. its choice today. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Well, anyways, all right. Um, there we go. And um, oh, so much stuff going on. So much stuff going on in the world. Um, and yet we're we're talking about, well, stuff that'll be relevant no matter what happens in all the political elections and everything else. We've got to have a clear understanding of what we believe and why we believe it. So that's why we're here. Thanks for supporting us. And thanks for being there. We will see you next time on The Dividing Line. God bless.